Hey, everybody. Thank you for joining the Grace Tabernacle podcast. Our goal is to reach our community with God's mercy, grace, and love with every podcast. We hope it will be inspirational and uplifting in your life. God bless and enjoy the podcast. Amen. Why don't you turn around and tell somebody they look good in the house of the Lord tonight as you are seated. Amen. 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 All right, that's enough telling everybody they look good. We're glad to have baby Hazel. You're not done yet. Glad to have baby Hazel with us tonight. She is uh, a little bit bigger than the last time I saw her. Not much bigger, but a little bit bigger. So glad to have Tia and Hazel with us tonight. We're going to baptize somebody in the name of Jesus tonight at the end of service, and I'm excited about that. Amen. Amen. We're excited about that. So we're going to get into the word of the Lord here tonight and, and uh, just see what God will do. I believe the Lord wants to talk to somebody tonight, multiple somebodies. I don't, I've said this multiple times over in this church in the last six years, and that is that if you are here, it's not an accident that you're here. If you're in the house of God, if you're watching online, it's not an accident. It's because God wants to talk to you. And so I'm going I'm to talk to you from this thought tonight, Amazing Grace. What a wonderful old song that is. Um, God's grace is amazing. When, when, we, when we get into to reading the Word of God, in, in Paul's letter to the Romans uh, that, that he wrote, he, he deals very very specifically, very pointedly with this topic called grace. But the truth is this, that in religion, in uh, the, 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 the church, uh, the, the secular church of this world, uh, the concept over the centuries since these God-inspired writings were penned by the Apostle Paul. The idea and the concept of grace has gotten very convoluted. The concept of grace has actually uh, gotten cheapened, if you'll allow me to say it that way. And so I want to take just a little bit of time tonight to try and help us understand, number one, what grace does for us. Look at somebody and say, grace does something for me. But then I also want to help us understand what grace does in us. Look at that same neighbor and say, grace does something in me too. It isn't just what grace does for me, it's what grace does in me that we need to have applied to our lives. Now, we'll see how far we get. I, I'm, I'm almost, I'm ne nearly positive. That, in fact, I know we're not going to get through this tonight. And so we'll come back after the business meeting next week, the, the following week after that, two weeks from tonight, and we will finish out this, this series on grace. Uh, but I want to begin this thought with just a, a couple of simple passages found in the book of Romans. Romans chapter 3 and verse number 23. Uh, Brother Media Man, just follow along as best you can. I intended to send all this to you because I've got different, different versions that I'm reading from, but you'll just have to follow along on whatever he's got up on the screen. And uh, I just, I've used a couple of different versions just to help you better understand what's being said. But Romans 3 and 23, first of all, uh, very familiar verse of Scripture. Paul says, for all, somebody say all. For all have sinned and come short of the glory of 
God. Every single person that has ever been born on this earth of a woman, which is everyone, is born with a natural instinct toward, not away from, but a natural instinct toward sin because Adam in the garden made a decision that he was going to disobey the word of God and he was going to do what his flesh desired to do rather than what God had instructed him to do. And because of that decision, because of that fall in the garden, every single individual that will ever be born or ever has been born has a natural instinct toward sin. But there is hope. Romans 5, in verse number 20, Paul writes and says in the latter part of that verse, he says, but where sin abounded, where sin abounded, that word abounded means it's overflowing, means there's more than enough of it to go around. It means that it, it comes over you in waves and you, you can't get past it. Anybody ever been in the ocean, maybe wave jumping in the ocean, and one hits you when you weren't expecting it and it kind of takes you under the water and you're having a little bit of trouble breathing and getting back up. Anybody ever been caught in a rip current? You're lucky if you're still here if you've been caught in a rip current. You're having a hard time getting up and breathing. That's what this word abounded means when it talks about sin in our life. Where sin abounded, somebody say grace. Grace did much more abound. And so in this thought process of the Apostle Paul, we have this struggle of sin versus righteousness. We have on one side a holy God and on the other side a unholy humanity on, on the other side of this holy God. And so in order for there to be communion, in order for there to be relationship between this holy God and this unholy humanity, something had to shift. Something had to change. And so we know that God does not change. He is who he is and he always will be holy. And so the only way that we can have fellowship with God Almighty who is holy and righteous is by, somebody say, the grace, the grace of God. And so Paul writes to the church at Rome to explain how this concept of grace works in our lives. But before he gets to how it operates and how it works in the life of a New Testament believer, Paul begins with the Old Testament. Paul begins with how it worked back in that time frame. And it's found in Romans chapter 4, beginning with verse number 1. I'm reading the New King James Version. I think the King James Version is what's on the board. You can follow along in your Bible if you'd like to. It says this in Romans 4 and 1. What then shall we say that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh? He's asking a question. What shall we say then that Abraham our father has found according to the flesh. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. Verse 3, For what does the Scripture say? And then he answers his own question. Abraham believed God, and it was accounted unto him, or to him, for righteousness. That word accounted in that third verse of Romans chapter 4 is a financial term. I love the way one commentator put it. He said this, it is a word that deals in reality. 
It was accounted unto him for righteousness. Paul is not saying that Abraham was righteous in himself. Paul is not saying that Abraham was righteous because of the works that he did. Paul is saying very emphatically that Abraham was righteous because of the faith that he had in God. The Bible says it was the faith of Abraham that God saw. It was the belief in God that was inside of Abraham's mind and his spirit and his heart toward God that God looked at and said, because you believe in me, because you have faith in me, I am going to count you or account you or I am going to declare you to be, somebody say be, it's an active word, I'm going to declare you to be righteous. The reality was that Abraham was righteous because God said Abraham was righteous. Didn't have anything to do with Abraham's works. Didn't have anything to do with, with anything that, that was good about Abraham. It was simply the fact that God said, I'm going to account you as being righteous. And so Abraham's reality was that before God, he was righteous. But I want you to take a, a notice of where Paul goes with this thought of, uh, of works and, and, and faith and belief and all of these things in the next few verses. Romans chapter 4, verse number 4. He says this. I'm reading the English Standard Version of the Bible to help you better understand. This is what he said. Now to the one who works, to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift. Remember, Paul's talking about faith. He's talking about grace and how that we are saved by faith or by grace through our faith in God. He said the one who tries to work his way into salvation, the gift that comes to him is not counted as a gift, but it's counted as his due. Let me help you understand what Paul's saying. He's saying there are some people out there who try to work their way into a place where they then feel like God owes them and God has to make them righteous because of the good deeds that they do. Paul says those that are working their ways or trying to work their way into salvation, it's not counted as the gift of God in their life, but it's counted as a due or a debt, the King James Version says. Verse number five, he says, and to the one who does not work but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, which is God, his faith is counted as righteousness. What's going on here? Paul is setting a line of separation. A separation between those who would try to work their way into righteousness and those who have faith in what Jesus did for righteousness. We cannot work our way. Brother Jeremy said, a wonderful, said it wonderfully on Sunday morning when he was preaching. You cannot work your way into salvation. You cannot work your way into heaven. You cannot work your way into righteousness. The only way that you will get righteousness in your life. The only way you will stand before God and Him say well done thou good and faithful servant is if you have had faith in Jesus Christ and then His grace is applied to your life. That's the only way it's going to work. And so Paul begins to take us through the life of Abraham. He is confirming that God counted him as righteous, even before the covenant of physical circumcision. We, we know the, the, the story in the Old Testament. If you don't, I'll briefly go through it. The Lord instructed Abraham to take all the males of his family and to circumcise them physically. And that was going to be the sign in their flesh that they were in covenant with God. But Paul goes on to tell them 
that, that it was even before that circumcision happened that God said, I'm counting him as righteous. And so it was not the physical act of circumcision that caused Abraham to be righteous before God. But all of this that, that Paul is talking about with Abraham, it's all leading somewhere. And Paul gets us there beginning in verse number 13, Romans 4 and 13. He says, for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world did not come through the law, but through the righteousness of of faith. He said it's not about works. It's not about how good you can do, how good you can be. It's simply about the faith that you have in God and the grace that is applied through your faith. And then he says this is the purpose in verse number 16 of that same chapter. He says, therefore, it is of faith that it might be according to grace. He said it's about faith. It's about you believing in God so that God's grace can then be applied to your life. But this is the purpose. He goes on. He says it is a faith that it might be according to grace so that, that's like that word therefore that we talk about all the time, so that the promise might be sure unto all the seed. He's talking about you and me. He's talking about those that were uh, of the seed of Abraham, but he's also talking about those in the New Testament who would come under the covenant of grace. He said that, 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 that it was according to grace so that the promise might be sure to all seed. He, he says it right here, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham, who is the father of us all. So this was the purpose of God. All the way from the beginning. The purpose of God is to reconcile unholy humanity to a relationship with Him. And Christ did that through His sacrifice on Calvary. And so Paul begins in the fifth chapter of Romans linking Abraham's justification in the Old Testament to the New Testament believers that would come after him. But I want to highlight the benefits of this transformation by God's grace through our faith. I want you to pay very close attention. Romans chapter 5 and, and beginning with verse number 1. This is, this is what Paul writes. He says, Therefore, having been Justified. He's talking about a, a past action that has happened in your life. Having been justified by faith. Last year we did a series on, on just a reconciliation and justification and then sanctification. That final act of that process that goes on in your life. Justification is when the grace of God comes into your life. And just like Abraham, you are declared righteous because of the blood of Jesus Christ that is applied to your life. But Paul says, uh, having been justified by faith, since we've gone through that process of being born again, he says we have peace. Somebody say peace. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through whom also we have access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. This term justified that Paul uses in verse number one, it's a, it's a legal decree. 
Romans 1, if we go back and we're to read that, I, I, I taught about that a couple of Wednesday nights ago, that, 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 that Paul said he's not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ, and he talks about the sin that's in the world. And he, he, he said in Romans 1 that we had already been found guilty before the court of God's glory and, and before the court of our conscience. God put that conscience on the inside of us to tell us the difference between right and wrong. But because our, our faith is placed in Jesus' sacrifice on the cross, he says the righteousness of God has been given to us but that righteousness is, that, that is applied to our lives is not solely about the salvation of the sinner but Paul says that we are uh, placed at a, a place of peace with God well but we can't miss this this is important for you to understand if you are living for the Lord Paul is not talking about the peace of God being in our life he talks about that uh, in, in the book of Ephesians I'm sorry, in Philippians chapter number 4, he talks about the peace of God that, that comes into our life. But he says that after we have been justified, we are at peace with God. In other words, when you truly submit your life to God, when you truly yield your heart to God, the battle between you and God is over. God won, and He won me in the process. He, he the, uh, Paul, Paul says, I believe it's in First or Second Corinthians, that we are. Uh, he has purchased us with His blood. That we are the the property, if you will, of God because He has purchased us. And so the battle between you and I, uh, Paul says in another place that that the carnal mind is the enemy of God. And so when we submit ourselves to God and we put on the armor of God and we let go of the carnal mind and we let the mind of Christ begin to come on the inside of us and he changes everything about us the battle and the struggle that we are in with God I don't think sometimes we recognize that when we're in the flesh and when we're living in a carnal mind we are literally at war with God you understand that? Paul says that the carnal mind is the enemy of God. And so we are at war with God in our lives if we are not submitted to his will and his purpose in our life. That's why it's important that you find an altar to repent at. That's why it's important that you build a daily altar in your life. That's why it's important that you're baptized in the name of Jesus and the blood of Christ is applied to your life. That's why you need to be filled with the baptism of the Holy Ghost speaking in other tongues as the Spirit gives you the utterance because you don't want to be the enemy of God. You want to be at peace with God. I hope you're hearing me tonight. You want to be at peace with God. Think about this. Think about this. This, this is what happens. Former rebels and sinners... They do not just have their due punishment remitted from their life when they repent and get baptized and get filled with the Holy Ghost. That happens. Yes, it does. Our sins are washed away. Uh, Acts 2 and 38 tells us that, that baptism is for the remission of our sins, the putting away of our sins. But it's not just that sinners and rebels get the sins in their life remitted from their life. But now, get this mental picture. Instead of being at war with God, they are sitting at the table of what used to be their enemy in Enjoying the benefits of his closest allies. That's grace. Think about that. Think about that. 
When someone wins a war and a a general or, or a president of another nation surrenders, they don't surrender to go and sit at the table of the winning commander of the other army. They surrender to get put in a prison cell somewhere because now they have been defeated. But Jesus doesn't work that way. He says, let me take care of all the things that were the enemy of me in your life. And now you come with your new justification on your life and you sit at my table and you eat from my food and you enjoy the benefits of being in relationship with me enjoy the benefits of being my friend of being my ally Paul says we are looking toward the glory of God or the glory of that future hope that Jesus Christ is coming back after his church those those people that have made themselves ready but he says it's not just about the future but grace works in the present as well watch what he says after talking about our justification and talking about how that all those 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 wars between us and God are over he says this in Romans 5 and 3 and not only that Not only are we justified, not only are we at peace with God, not only are the things that used to be bad in our life now working for our good, but he says we also glory in, 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 somebody say in, glory in the midst of tribulations. Why? That's that's crazy. Pastor, how can you say that we can glory in tribulations? How, uh, that, that's, that's like, that's like the, the other apostle telling us to be joyous in temptations and, and being glad about the, the trials and stuff that we face. He says that we glory in tribulations because we understand that tribulation produces perseverance in our life. And perseverance produces character and character produces hope. And then in verse 5, he says, Now hope does not disappoint. The King James Version says, Hope maketh not ashamed. The New King James says, Hope does not disappoint. You will never be disappointed if you will simply yield your life to God. If you truly yield to God, you will never be disappointed because you'll you'll always understand that no matter what comes, it's God's will and purpose for your life and it's getting you to a better place that God wants you to be in. I didn't say nothing bad would ever happen. I I said you'd never be disappointed in God's purpose for your life. Paul says that when grace gets its hands on our lives, we will be able to glory in tribulations that come our way, not because we enjoy trouble, but because it's building something inside of us. Suffering, nobody likes that word, suffering. But when suffering comes our way in whatever capacity God sees fit to allow it to come to those who bear his name, we understand that suffering is working a greater purpose in our lives. And then he goes on to explain the greater purpose that God is using our trials to bring. Tribulation or suffering leads to, that word perseverance means patience. It's that thing I always tell you never to pray for. I was reading a book the other day though and it said you really ought to pray for patience because you need patience. Tribulation, if you, if you keep on going through a trial, it might be because God's trying to teach you patience. And if you keep being impatient in your trial, God might just keep sending another trial until you learn to be patient, perseverant, pushing forward in your trial. Patience or perseverance, he said, leads to experience. 
we think of that word experience as, well, I've had 10 years on my job. I've got experience. But that word in the Greek is closer to our English word character. Perseverance, pushing through, patience through tribulation actually builds character in our lives. Then Paul says character leads to hope. When you have experience, when you have character built in your life, it begins to teach you that God is able because you've already seen him do it once. <clears throat> you believe that he can do it again. And so you have hope. And then he says hope or expectation never leads to being ashamed or disappointed. If you follow through the Word of God, you will find very clearly that this is the maturation process in action in the life of a believer. We are supposed to mature in our walk with God. One virtue grows upon the other as we grow in the pattern and the life of Jesus Christ. One commentator said it like this, speaking about patience and perseverance and tribulation, he said, I'd just rather Jesus sprinkle perseverance and character on me as I sleep. And then I'd just wake up a better believer. Anybody ever prayed that way? Jesus, just sprinkle it on me as I sleep. That's not the plan of God. We learn perseverance and character through the trials and tribulations that God allows us to go through. Adversity breeds character. That is why it is imperative, if you've been in this church any amount of time at all, if you and I have spent any time at all talking in any capacity whatsoever, I have told you that it is imperative for you to build spiritual disciplines into your life. You need to find a place to pray every single day of your life. You need to find some time to get into the Word of God and study that Word of God every single day of your life. You need to take some time every week or every couple of weeks and you need to crucify your flesh through fasting. And you need to put your flesh on the cross. You need to give something up for God. It is imperative that you build spiritual disciplines in your life because trouble only enhances what is already there. I'm going to say that again for somebody that didn't hear it. Trouble, tribulation, <clears throat> and trial is only going to enhance what is already there. If you have not built spiritual disciplines into your life before you walked into that trial, you are not going to build them in the midst of a trial. That's okay. I'm preaching on a Wednesday night in my teaching voice. You will not build spiritual disciplines in the midst of a trial. You have to do that while things are going good. So that when you get to the trial, your spiritual disciplines just take over. Because you ain't going to have what it takes to get where you need to get by yourself. Hear this tonight. <clears throat> if you're addicted when you enter a trial, you're going to be addicted when you come out of it. Because you're not going to beat that in the midst of a trial. If you are spiritually minded when you walk in a trial, you're going to be spiritually minded when you walk out of the trial. If you're angry when you walk in a trial, you're going to be angry when you come out of a trial. If you're mean when you walk in a trial, you're going to be mean when you come out of the trial. 
I can keep on going if, if you want me to. All the seven deadly sins, I can just keep on going. You must build spiritual disciplines before you enter a trial because you're not going to build it in the midst of it. Paul wanted to, again, solidify the love of God for us. And so he contrasts what man would do. Somebody say would do. What man would do with what God did do. Listen to what he says, Romans 5 and 6. For when we were still without strength in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Scarcely for a righteous man will one die, yet perhaps for a good man someone might even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Christ died, hear, hear me, not Christ died for me. I know he did it for me so that I could have something. But you need to think of it like this. Christ died in my place. You see, you should have been the one that died. You should be the one that's in hell for eternity. You should be the one that deals with all the punishment that comes along with the sin that is natural in your life. But he said Christ died in our place. And then he says this in verse 9. Much more then, having now been justified by his blood. That word by is in we are justified in his blood. You want to know why you have to be baptized? Because that's how you get in the blood. It's through baptism. He said, much more than having now been justified in his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled in the past tense, we shall be saved by his Life. This is amazing grace. If Jesus was willing to come and die in your place without any guarantee of response on your part, if he did not give up on you when you were literally at war with him, then Paul is saying, why would he give up on you now? If he was willing to die for you while you were fighting him, engaged in battle with him. Why would he give up on you now? After you have surrendered your life to him and received his righteousness in your life, why would God give up on you now? But the greater revelation is this. If Jesus could save you from sin through his death on the cross, this is what Paul wants you to understand. How much more is God able to give you Victory over sin through his life. You see, it would have been amazing for Jesus to die in my place and forgive my sin and say, this is your one shot. You can repent of your sins and if you can figure out how to live it by yourself after that, you're going to be good because I died in your place and my blood can wash away your sin. But when he resurrected from that grave, when he got up out of that tomb and walked out of there and ascended into heaven, Paul said, not only did he give us freedom 
in our sin through his death, but he gave us power over sin through his life. I'm so thankful for amazing grace. The latter portion of Romans chapter 5, I'm hurrying to a close here, is spent contrasting what Paul calls in various places throughout his New Testament writings to Adam's. The first man, Adam, brought sin into the world. It's found in Romans 5 and 12. He says, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death passed upon all men, for that all have sinned. I told you in the beginning, we all are born with a tendency towards sin. Nobody has to teach Hazel how to sin. She'll figure that out pretty quick on her own. Mom and Dad don't have to say, well, this is how you lie, and this is how you cheat, and this is how you do whatever. You can be the best parents in the world, and your kid is going to figure out because they have a natural instinct inside of them. Paul talks about, we're going to talk a little bit about it in the next couple of weeks, but Paul talks about how we didn't know what sin was until the law came. All that the law did was let us know what lines we could cross. You realize that? The law was righteous. We just couldn't keep it in ourselves. But all it really did was say, here's the line, so that my flesh could say, okay. Here's the line. Okay. You want to show me another fence? I'll step over that too. That's what your flesh does. And so, and so we don't have to teach people children, babies, how, 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 to, how to sin because they, they have this tendency because as Paul says, by one man sin into the world. This is unfortunately what happens with people. Sin entered the world through Adam. Death entered the world through sin. And both are passed on to every member of the human race. Paul is not just saying that we are all <clears throat> like Adam, sinners, He's saying that we were all in Adam. When Adam sinned, we all sinned because we, we are all of the seed of Adam. Noah came from Adam and we all came from Noah after the flood and so we're all there. And so when Adam sinned, we all sinned. Adam was the singular representative for the human race. And so when he missed the mark, he missed the mark for every single one of us. And that may not seem fair and it's not. But what I can tell you is that it was by design. It was all in the mind of God from creation. Because if one man, a sinful Adam, could bring death to all of the human race, then one man, a second righteous Adam, that being Jesus Christ, could bring life to all of the human race as well. This is what he says in verse number 15. But not as the offense so also is the free gift. For if through the offense of one many are dead, much more. Somebody say much more. Much more. The grace of God and the gift by grace, which is by one man Jesus Christ, hath abounded unto many. What, what, what is the difference in the two Adams? Let, let me, as we close here tonight, give you a few instances of the differences between the two Adams. Adam the first was disobedient. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, was obedient even unto 
death, the Bible says. The first Adam broke the law. But the second Adam, Jesus Christ, according to his own words, came to fulfill the law. The first Adam brought offense, but the second Adam, Jesus Christ, brought grace. The first Adam brought bondage on the human race, but the second Adam, Jesus, brought freedom from bondage. The first Adam brought death, but Jesus brought life. The first Adam brought condemnation, but Jesus Christ, the second Adam, brings justification through his blood. It is God's amazing grace. There's an old song that we used to sing many, many years ago. It simply says, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater, or grace that pardons and cleanses within. Grace, grace, God's grace, grace that is greater than all my sin. Grace. Amazing grace is what God did for us. Before we come to salvation... Before we repent of our sins, before we're baptized in the name of Jesus Christ, before we receive the baptism of the Holy Ghost, everything that is true of the first Adam is true of us. We're disobedient. We break the law. We offend the law. We're in bondage. Death is coming our way spiritually, and we are condemned. Before we come into relationship with Christ, everything true of Adam is true of us. But when we are saved, all that is true of Jesus Christ is also true of us. We are justified, we are sons of God, and we are heirs of the kingdom of heaven. Paul tells us that we are heirs with Christ. Because we repent, we're baptized, and we're filled with the Holy Ghost. What we've talked about tonight is God's grace. What amazing grace does for us. The truth is this. It's something that we cannot do by ourselves. You, you cannot work your way into salvation. But in two weeks, we're going to talk about what the grace of God wants to do inside of us. There is a further work of grace. The Bible says that the grace of God hath appeared unto all men. We like to stop right there. But he says this. He says that the grace of God appeared to all men. And then he goes on to say, teaching us. The grace of God hath appeared unto all men, teaching us. Teaching us what? That denying ungodliness and worldliness, right? We should live soberly and righteously and godly in this present world. The grace of God is not just a, a license to sin. I told you in the very beginning that grace has been convoluted. Grace has been cheapened because many people will try to tell you that the grace of God is just simply a license for you to go out there and do whatever you want to do. But that is not a biblical foundation for grace. And so in two weeks, I'm going to talk to you about what the grace of God wants to do inside 
of you. So here in just a few moments, as soon as Miss Cassie is ready, we're going to baptize her in Jesus' name. I thank God that she has uh, decided to take this step in her walk with God, this next step. God's been dealing with her about that. And so we're excited for her tonight. If there's anybody else in the house that you've never been baptized in Jesus' name, the water is warm, it's clean, and we will baptize you tonight. We've got robes and towels and all of those things. But I want you to pray with me right now. And we're going to ask God to begin to move on our hearts and minds. Jesus, I thank you for your word. I thank you for your power. I thank you, God, for your anointing in this place. I thank you, Lord, for the grace that you have given to us. I thank you, Lord, that you came and manifested yourself in flesh, that you, you came and died on a cross for my salvation. You shed blood that was innocent, God, that could be applied to my life, that when I repent of my sins and I'm baptized in your name, that I am justified in your blood, that I don't have to worry about the things that I've done in my past, God, because they are all washed out of my life, but I can have total confidence and faith in what you want to do for me, God. And so I thank you, God, for your amazing grace. I thank you for your grace that covers my sins and, and helps me to become what you want me to be, God. But I pray also that you would allow your grace to become a teacher in my life, God. In two weeks when we talk about what grace wants to do inside of us, I pray that you would plant a seed in each and every one of us. Help us, God, to walk forward in what you want to do. And we're going to give you great thanks and praise for it, God. I plead the blood over Cassie right now, God. I pray that as she goes down in the waters of baptism that your anointing would begin to move upon her, God, that you would call her into a deeper place of a relationship with you, God, that she's never experienced before. And we're going to thank you and give you praise and glory for it, God. And we ask it in the wonderful name of Jesus Christ. Everybody said amen.